Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, March 23rd. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what we're covering today. The AstraZeneca vaccine passes initial American trials. Plus, why a fire at one Japanese chip plant is affecting the entire auto industry. And in a few minutes, we'll have today's one big thing on the U.S. war in Afghanistan. But first, the mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. We're following this morning the story of a mass shooting yesterday at a grocery store in Boulder. Police responded to an active shooter incident at the King Supers in South Boulder Monday afternoon. Late last night, officials confirmed 10 people were shot and killed, including Boulder police officer Eric Talley. Officer Talley responded to the scene, was the first on the scene, and he was fatally shot. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold said her heart goes out to all the victims. We will be here working night and day. We have one suspect in custody. I want to reassure the community that they are safe and that we will try to do our best over the next few hours to identify the victims. Police are expected to provide an update later this morning. You can always visit us at Axios.com for the latest on this story. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in Afghanistan Sunday. It was the Biden administration's first trip there and comes ahead of a May 1st deadline to remove all U.S. troops. As that date looms, there's questions about whether or not that timeline makes sense. Axios' world editor Dave Lawler is here to unpack all of this for us. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Nyla. Why was the defense secretary in Afghanistan? So the Biden administration is facing a very difficult few weeks ahead in Afghanistan. There is, as you mentioned, this May 1st deadline to get out of the country. Lloyd Austin said his mission is to try to bring the war to a responsible end. That's going to be a very difficult proposition going forward. And so it was a statement that the U.S. is still involved in this fight. I think he, you know, he showed up to give some support to the troops. But obviously, he faces a difficult few weeks ahead. And President Biden faces very difficult decisions on the path forward in Afghanistan. And this May 1st withdrawal deadline is actually from an agreement between President Trump that he made with the Taliban. Austin didn't mention it this past weekend. Does that mean it might not happen? So President Biden was asked about this recently, and he said it will, quote, be tough uh, to get out by May 1st. But the official position of the Pentagon is that deal still remains operative. Behind the scenes, there seems to be a lot of concern about whether that's a realistic proposition and if it's not what they do. And so there's this idea out there that maybe they'll push for an extension toward later in the year. A six-month extension has been floated, but it's unclear how exactly that will come together. Dave, you mentioned a difficult few weeks ahead for the Biden administration. How has President Biden been dealing with the situation in Afghanistan that he inherited from previous administrations, including President Trump? Right, exactly. And he was part of a previous administration that ramped up the U.S. troop count. The Obama administration took the troop count in Afghanistan up to around 100,000 U.S. troops. Biden opposed that move at the time. He's always been kind of skeptical of the idea that the U.S. could achieve a lasting peace in Afghanistan through a military presence there. But you're right. Now he inherits the opposite situation where he inherits a deal where it's about getting out entirely. And Biden now has to decide whether to get out by this May 1st deadline to honor Trump's deal or whether he really thinks things will look better if the U.S. stays in and tries to move toward a more stable situation, ideally through political negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. He faces really only bad options, I think. But yeah, he has to make a decision by May 1st. The war on terror was how we got into Afghanistan to begin with. Is that why we're still there? 
we've kind of come full circle here that one of the big arguments against getting out of Afghanistan is that we'll get back into kind of the pre-2001 scenario where the country is an area in which terror groups can operate freely. There's already an al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. That was part of the deal with the Taliban to try to make sure Afghanistan could not become a long-term operating base for groups like al-Qaeda. But yeah, a lot of the voices cautioning Biden against pulling out entirely say that once again, Afghanistan could be a place from which groups like al-Qaeda operate. Axios' world editor, Dave Lawler. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Nyla. We'll be back in 15 seconds with the latest on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Welcome back to Axios Today. The U.S. has announced the results of a long-awaited study on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Will the results help with global confidence? Axios's healthcare editor, Sam Baker, joins us now. What do we know about how effective the AstraZeneca vaccine is according to U.S. trials? So according to the company, they put out a press release yesterday that said their vaccine was 79% effective, which is pretty good and better than a lot of people were expecting. And when we hear that 79%, what do you think we should take away from that? Does that include being measured against, for example, new variants of the coronavirus? 79% means that it's that level of efficacy at preventing symptomatic infection. So it is very strong protection against the things about the coronavirus that we fear the most. Death, hospitalization, serious illness. The data about how any of the vaccines work against the variants is all sort of over the map because there are so many variants spreading differently throughout the world. It's really difficult to do like a controlled clinical trial. There's no specific information in what the company put out yesterday about how this one has performed against any of the variants. We're figuring that out as we go. Sam, despite the fact this has run into problems being distributed in Europe, we are pledging to send some of our stockpile of AstraZeneca to Canada and Mexico. Is there a sense of how that vaccine will be received? Yeah, this is one of the big questions that the U.S. is going to have to answer. And it's too early to know the answer now. But we have already purchased enough of the other three to vaccinate ourselves with a pretty good reserve supply to start vaccinating children when that time comes or develop booster shots if we need them against the variants. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is sort of seen as, as the vaccine for the rest of the world. So it's something the U.S. will have to decide. Do we hang on to these doses because we're clearly buying up everything we can so far? Or is this the one where the FDA's sign-off hopefully will give the rest of the world a little bit more confidence in the safety of this product, and then we can use our stockpile to start vaccinating the rest of the world. After I talked to Sam, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, that's the organization Dr. Fauci directs, issued an extraordinary statement early this morning. It said results from the U.S. trial may have included, quote, outdated information that could mean AstraZeneca provided an incomplete view of the efficacy data. An AstraZeneca spokesman told the Associated Press the company is looking into it. Sam Baker is Axios' healthcare editor. 
A fire at a semiconductor plant in Japan is just the latest in a series of events that are causing serious chip problems for the auto industry. So much so the share price of Japan's big three car makers dropped sharply on the news of this fire. Axios's chief technology correspondent, Ina Fried, is here to explain why. Ina, how is it that a fire in part of a plant in Japan can become such a big deal? I know it sounds crazy, Nyla, but the deal here is basically chips have become so central to all kinds of things, including cars, that basically without the needed chips, you can't make the car. Car makers have been shutting down entire manufacturing lines already because of a chip shortage. We saw this in Texas. There were snowstorms that affected a couple plants in Austin. And there was already a shortage of these needed chips. And without the chips, you can't run your car basically these days. And why is chip production so important? Why aren't we producing more of them to begin with? They're very expensive to make. Only a few companies around the world actually run their own manufacturing plants. Many use contract manufacturers, and they just didn't plan for enough. Demand really turned around after a COVID slump, and you need them for all kinds of things, from cars to cell phones, computers, and there just aren't enough to go around. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent, Ina Freed. Thanks, Ina. Thanks, Nyla. That's all we've got for you today. A reminder, you can always visit Axios.com or follow Axios on Twitter for the latest breaking news on the mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.